all people like them? Are people basically evil at heart? Or are they basically good? Are there some of each? With the right training, can we change a person's heart from one way to another way? Make someone good or make someone evil? And when I say heart, of course you understand I'm not talking about the physical heart. That's just a figure of speech to talk about the inner person, the emotions and thoughts of a person, the causal core. That's what we're talking about. Is it evil? Is it good? Or is it malleable? If you ask most people in our culture whether they are good or evil, they will quickly declare themselves to be good. I'm pretty good. I'm not perfect. I'm still a good person. Certainly, if you bring up the example of Cain, they would say, oh, I would never do that. I'm not like Cain. Not only do people think of themselves as basically good, but they also have, by and large, great hope for their fellow man. If we can just educate people properly, show them that racial prejudices are groundless, show them how good it feels to treat other people kindly, show them how bad it feels when they make fun of other people and things like that, then they'll realize that they want to be good people, and they will be. Or if we can just get people to communicate, to understand each other, then they'll see that they're not that different, and they'll stop fighting. Or if we can just get people to realize what it is that they really want, and then help them achieve those dreams, then they'll stop acting out in all these detrimental ways. If we just educate them properly, we'll make good people. We hear these kinds of ideas a lot. They even form some of our government policies. But are people basically good on the inside? Are they evil? Or are they neither? Let's see what the Bible has to say in response to these questions. Because as we said, the Bible is the only trustworthy authority and actually has a lot to say about the heart of man. So rather than studying one passage in depth today, we're going to look at a number of different passages to come up with an overall view of what the Bible says on this topic. I'll give you an outline of what we're doing today. We'll first identify what the Bible says really is in man's heart. Then we'll remind ourselves how the Bible calls us to respond to what's in man's heart. And then we'll ask and answer some application questions that have to do with how do we talk about this topic or how do we address this topic with other people? So let's pray as we begin. Lord Creator, Sustainer, I pray that you would give me an extra measure of your grace so that I am able to teach this morning. I pray, Lord, that the instruction would be clear and edifying, that people would understand that uh, brethren would understand what the Bible says in this area, that they'd be confident in it, and that they might speak with boldness about your gospel for the joy, Lord, that is set before you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so what is in man's heart? Have Adam and Eve cursed all of mankind, or were they just a couple of bad examples? Well, a great place to go to help answer these questions, the first place we're going to go is Romans 5, so please open your Bibles and turn there. We're going to read Romans 5, verses 12 to 21. If you have your workbooks with you, you can follow along and write notes on page 93. We'll look at this verse and some others. But Romans 5, starting in verse 12, going down to 21. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death 
reigned through the one. Much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, many will be made righteous. The law came in so that transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that, as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. An amazing passage. Really a triumphant passage. Let's ask a few questions of this critical text. Who is the one man mentioned in verse 12? That's Adam, right? He's the one who first sinned in verse 14, directly refers to Adam. Death reigned from Adam, and then it says uh, to Moses, from Adam to Moses. So death started with Adam, so his first sin. As a result of Adam's sin, we see three specific effects spread to the rest of mankind in this passage. What are the three effects? Sin entered into the world, but what effect did that have on mankind? What kind of death? Well, it doesn't actually say spiritual death, but I think it's accurate for us to say that because of what it says in verse 19. It says, the many were made sinners. They gained a new condition. They were sinners. They were people who do sin. So that's another way to say that they died spiritually. But they also died physically. Verse 12 and 14 make that pretty clear. Death reigned from Adam until Moses. We're talking about physical death. But there's also something else. What's the other effect that it says to all mankind? What's the result of being a sinner? And when you die, what are you going to experience? Verse 16 and verse 18 use a specific term. What resulted to all men? Condemnation. So not only is man dying physically, and not only is he now dead spiritually, that he's become a sinner, he has become sinful, but he is under condemnation. He will experience the judgment of God. Now, which people will not experience the negative effects of Adam's sin, according to this passage? Oh, no, let me say it this way. Before we bring Christ into it, which people do not experience the effects of Adam's sin? Nobody. No. Because notice how many times the word all is mentioned in this passage, specifically with those curses that we mentioned. Verse 12, death spread to all men because all sin. Verse 18, through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. The universal effect. To whom is Adam contrasted in this passage? Christ, right? And if being an Adam resulted in such negative effects and curses, what are the effects of being in Christ? Again, we see three of them. Which one? Justification, right? The opposite of condemnation. You're going to be declared righteous. What else? That's verse 16 and 19, right? What else does man gain? Righteousness. He becomes righteous. He becomes a doer of good. He gains a new condition. He's righteous. And then, life. Right? Instead of death, life. Verse 17. Life reigned in Christ. And notice these effects are also universal for those found in Christ. We again see the words all and the many being so the teaching of Romans 5 is actually pretty clear when it comes to man's heart. In Adam, all people are condemned, sinful people who will die. They're under God's judgment, they're spiritually dead, and they're physically dying. Now why are they like this? 
to Adam, and what did Adam do? That's right, Adam sinned. Therefore, all these effects that you might have. Because of Adam's disobedience, all people are dying today. Now, this sobering truth is echoed throughout the Bible. Romans 3.23, you probably know the verse. What does it say? Again, very universal. Everyone's a sinner. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God, just as Romans 5 is emphasizing. And they are, as they fall short of the glory of God, they are therefore condemned by God. But it's not just the book of Romans, not just the Apostle Paul. If we even go back to Genesis, a few chapters after Cain and Abel, listen to this statement. Genesis 6-5. Then the Lord's Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, when did God make that observation? That's Genesis 6-5. Before the flood, right? This is right before God's going to flood the world in judgment. And he really emphasizes the wickedness of man in this verse. You may not have it in front of you, but just repeat it. It says, the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's three ways of saying man is extremely wicked. Great evil, every thought is evil, and it was continually evil. What do you reinforce that with? Every thought of man was evil all the time. This is the state of mankind after Adam's sin. Maybe you'd say, oh, it's different after the flood, right? Because God dealt with all of this. Well, don't forget the Tower of Babel. It definitely argues otherwise. But then there's the statement that God says to Noah right after Noah makes a pleasing sacrifice to God. Look at Genesis 8.21. A very amazing text. Genesis 8.21. The Lord smelled the seething aroma. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing that I have made. So it's the same sentiment, right? Even after the flood, God identifies the state of man's heart as harboring constant evil. Except here, God even identifies the point in life in which evil is evident. From what time? From your youth. From your being a little kid. You can see the evil of man's heart. It's evident. It's manifest. King David says it even more explicitly in Psalm 51.5. After he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband Uriah, David is confessing his sin before the Lord. He is repenting before the Lord. And then he includes this insight in the psalm. Psalm 51.5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now David is not saying that his mother conceived him as an adulterer or something like that. And even if she did, it wouldn't have anything really to do with David's own sin. That, that sin wouldn't transfer to David. It's not in that sense. Nor is David saying that sex itself is sinful or shameful. God created sex before the fall, part of the fulfillment of the command, be fruitful and multiply. So it's not those things. Instead, David is telling us when he became a sinner. And when was that? What? Even before he was born. Before he was conceived, right? Or when he was conceived. As soon as he was conceived, that's when he became a sinner. In other words, he's always been. recognizes that and confesses that before God. And if this was true of David, who was a righteous king, said to be a man after God's own heart, what about the rest of mankind? What about you and me? Finally, Jeremiah 17.9. You've probably heard this many times. Jeremiah 17.9 says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. 
speaking of that, notice this verse. It says, the heart. Not referring to so-and-so's heart or sinner's heart, but whose heart? just the heart in general, man's heart, every man's heart. It's deceitful, sure. It's so sick and deceitful that no one can even unravel it. This makes sense. Your deceitful heart even prevents you from understanding how deceitful it is. No one can unravel this sick, twisted heart of man, except, notice verse 10 again. Well, it's not mostly there, but I'll mention verse 10. Right after that statement, we have this. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. Even to give each man according to his ways. According to the results of his thinking. There is one who perfectly understands the human heart and can unravel all its deceptions. God. What is sobering, however, is that God doesn't just search the heart simply to understand, to comprehend mankind. What does he do then? cannot fully unravel the deceptions of his heart, but God can and will unravel them. Let's put some of this together. Can someone summarize for me what is the origin and extent of sin when it comes to humanity? That's what I said. The origin of sin is Adam's sin, and it is completely spread wrong. The extent of its as it is everywhere. Sin originated with Adam, was passed on. Man is now physically dying, completely sinful in his heart and behavior, totally condemned by God. So Genesis 3 and 4 are not simply a couple of bad examples. Now some theologians actually have claimed that. They are the first manifestations of a malady common to all humankind. Really what we're talking about here is the doctrine of original sin. I didn't know this before, but when we think of the term original sin, we might think of it as referring to the actual event when the sin took place. That's not really what it means. The doctrine refers to every person's inherited sinfulness from Adam. You all have original sin. Much more simplistic, I trust. The doctrine of the original sin again, is that every person is born with a sin nature that causes him to rebel against God, even from conception. Now, someone might say, yeah, I understand, but I'm not that bad. I mean, I'm not as bad as Cain or Judas. I even do some good things from time to time. I don't think it's true that I sin constantly. How, How do you respond to that kind of statement? reason you don't seem so wicked is that God is actually mercifully restrained you. But even what you think of as not being that wicked is all marred. Constantly failing. So even the good things you do, they're, they're not good before God. They're actually reprehensible. They're errors.
two good ideas. One is, um, it's just, it, this is authoritative. It says that all men are sin. That includes you, no matter what you think. All men are sinful, constantly thinking and doing evil. But, as Eric also pointed out, in everything that we do, we do not reach the perfection of God. And that is what sin is. Perhaps we don't think about sin in this way, but sin is any thought, word, or deed that is not perfect like God is. If it's 95% good, it's evil. Because it has a little bit of evil in it. And God can't stand even a little bit of evil. And this is the case with many of the things that we think that we do that are good. So again, to be clear here, some answers that I would give to this question. First of all, the Bible says otherwise, that we're a good person. Second of all, we must remember, remember that any sin is a departure from the perfection and the holiness of God. Unless you do your deeds exactly the way that God would do them, including with appropriate trust, thankfulness, love for God, and love for other people, then your deeds are imperfect, meaning that they are not only unrighteous, they are, or they are not only not righteous, they are actually sinful, because you misrepresented and dishonored the goodness of God. was alluding to one of those scriptures that's helpful for emphasizing this point, James 2.10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. I think this is true in a justification sense that if you broke one commandment and perfectly kept all the others, that you'd still be a lawbreaker. But I think there's also a testament here to how we cannot compartmentalize sin. If you sin in one area, it will affect all your other behaviors. Because you're not totally devoted to the Lord. Therefore, your works are not totally perfect with the Lord. What were you going to say, Eric? Oh, yeah. That's a good, um, forget the reference to that one. But there is none good, no, not one. We have all turned aside, each to his own way. So unless someone keeps the whole law, he's a lawbreaker. He's incapable of obeying any of God's commands. Even the good we do, the so-called good we do, is imperfect and therefore disgusting to God. And we know that other things are cursed. We have to confess the same thing that Isaiah does on behalf of sinful Israel. Isaiah 64, 6. For all of us have become like one who is unclean. All of us. And all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. So we may feel like we're good, but we have not examined the standard that God has really set. It is to be good as he is, perfect as he is, in everything, all the time. Now, we don't even do it part of the time. We think we do, but we don't. So if we are merely in Adam, if we are not in Christ, then we actually do constantly sin. We're constantly dishonoring God in thought and deed. Every moment we fail to obey and imitate our righteous creator perfectly. Outwardly, we may not seem so bad, and partly that's God's mercy. But God searches the heart, and he is righteously angry at all uncleanness and evil, anything that does not conform to his likeness or standard. Matthew 5.38, Matthew 5.38, therefore you are to be perfect just as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now Jesus didn't say that, he said, have faith in me. Okay, so get to it. Make your shirt, I like it. Make a new Nabesco, a new Nabesco logo. Now someone else might say, but it's not fair. Why should I suffer the consequences of Adam's sin? Why should I be accountable to God because of it? I wasn't there in the garden. I didn't choose Adam as my representative. How is it just that I should inherit Adam's sin? I didn't do it. I don't deserve it. But this, too, is a question we could respond to from multiple angles. I'm going to choose two angles. First of all, you may not have chosen Adam as your representative, but God did. 
he's the one who not only instituted the system of headship, but he specifically created the person who would serve as your representative and the representative of the human race. So you know, everything that God does is perfectly wise, perfectly good, and perfectly just. So God's installation of Adam as the head of humanity must have been perfectly wise, good, and just. To reject the idea of headship, or to reject Adam as your head, is to demand God to give an account. To tell us, to explain his wisdom. So that we can say whether it's justified or not. But God is not accountable to us. It's always folly to demand an account from God. God always does what is right. He is not obligated to explain that to anyone. However, God does not leave us in the dark as to why he has done what he has done in creation and redemption. It is namely to enjoy and show forth his satisfying glory and the gospel of Jesus Christ. The choice of Adam as our failing head was perfect for God's glorious purposes of salvation. The consequences for our ultimate failure all of history is Speaking of that salvation, another angle, God is pleased to save us using a similar system to that which condemned us. Just as Adam was our head and doomed us with his curse, so Christ becomes a new head, a new representative for believers, bearing their curse instead of giving them another. Remember, Greg emphasized this point in his sermon about the uh, his sermon on Romans 5. If we have a problem with Adam acting as a representative, and we should also have a problem with Christ as our representative. But it's clear we're sinners. It's clear we're sinful. It's clear that we need redemption. So none of us are going to refuse Christ as our head. Make sense? To refuse Christ as our lordship. But before we can take Christ as our representative, we must see the horrifying curse we are under as a result of our first choice of sin. Adam sinned and passed on death of sin nature and eternal condemnation to mankind. And this truth has profound implications, especially for our society. It means that the many efforts from government officials, educators, and health professionals, that many of their efforts are doomed to fail because they assume something that is completely untrue about man. They assume that man is innately good or that man can be made good with specific training designed by man. Side note, this truth also shows up in many of the messages from media entertainment and the shows and movies that they create. How many times have movies, cartoons, and music encouraged us to follow our hearts, be true to ourselves, or let our feelings guide us? I'm not saying that's boycott our way to redemption. I'm just saying that we should be aware. It's a constant message. Those messages might work if man were naturally good, or if we're moldably good. But in reality, they just are folly. In light of man's true state, they are simply naive invitations to embrace our undesirable. There's one big problem, though, that we haven't addressed yet. If we we are all sinful, dying, condemned sinners, then how do we make the switch? How can we take Christ as a representative? Or how can someone take Christ as a representative? Well, Christian Leopold won't give us much hope. Because if you remember, when the sinners were lovingly confronted by God over their sin, what did Adam, Eve, and Cain refuse to do? Repent. They had God sitting right in front of them. He pointed it out. He pointed out their shame. And they refused. They evaded. They blamed others. In my previous lessons, I even went so far to claim that they couldn't repent. Not that they wouldn't, not just that they wouldn't, they couldn't. The sin held them in such a grip that they could never change their minds about God and return to sin as they see fit. Is this it for the rest of Scripture? Well, let's turn to Ephesians. 
Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. If you ever want to talk to someone about man's inability to repent, this is probably the best passage to turn to because it is so Verses 1 and 9. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Just a few observations. Verses 1 to 3 describe our state very depressingly. I think it would have been enough, verse 1, you are dead in trespasses and sins. You're unable to do anything when you're dead. You just can't. You're not responsible. You're not even there. But it's more than that. The other verses go on to say, we were trapped in the world's patterns. We lived according to the course of the world. We were dominated by the prince of the power of the air. This is another name for whom? Satan. He's the ruler of the world in that sense. We were dominated by Satan. We were enslaved by the lust of our flesh. We were ruled by our various desires. In our very nature, we were children of wrath. It's like six different ways of God saying you were completely helpless and doomed. And under such a state, how many people would choose to repent and seek God? Well, who can be saved? Verses 4 to 8 tell us God has to save us. God has to make us alive. And he shows us undeserved favor in doing so, opening our eyes to see reality as it really is, opening our eyes to see the beauty of God in Christ and in the gospel, and causing us to repent and believe. Just as Jesus explained to Nicodemus in John 3. To be saved, a man has to be born again. But what child can ever accomplish his own conception? No baby can ever cause himself to exist. It's impossible. But that's the point. God must cause spiritual birth. God must provide the seed, his seed, as 1 John 3 says. Salvation is through free grace. He calls, he draws near, he regenerates, he sanctifies, he gives faith, he causes a new love for him to arise in our hearts, and repentance. And just as soon, he does all those things. Now why do it this way? Because God has said all of it will be in perfect harmony. As Ephesians 2.9 says, no one will boast when God does it all. God will show himself to be worthy of the utmost worship as he displays his unfathomable patience, his unending mercy, his infinite power to completely accomplish the salvation of
Let's see, we'll get to some more cheap birthday puns. Lazarus being raised from the dead by Jesus is a good biblical analogy for what God does in salvation. Jesus didn't ask Lazarus what he was looking for. He said, this man just needs to be alive. He needs to come out. And that's Jesus at the fire. Many people forget that just between death is simply a period of separation. It's a period of separation and inability helplessness, just as Lazarus was helpless to do anything or to respond to Jesus. God had to do it all. Let's try to hand this mic over. Romans 7, verses 14 through 24. It's an interesting passage, and there are some interpretive questions about it. Is he talking about man in general? Is he just talking about himself? And he certainly seems to be saying a little bit on the side of the, the believer's experience, because he says there is a, there's an evil part in me, and then I joyfully concur, though, that I don't want to do these things. I don't know if you can necessarily say that about the unregenerate, though there is a recognition that the law is good. But certainly the concept of um, the law, that law of Unbeliever is under that law, and they're controlled by the law. Even impediments to believing is that I'm joyful and joyfully submit to anything in there, godly or not. But thank you for making that available so people can hear. So salvation is all of God, and it will never happen unless God but if that's all true, well, what do we tell unbelievers? They can't really repent unless God does it. Is there any promise in your human hearts? We are the means. God has chosen us to be the ambassadors that cause people to be saved. I mean, really, it's the Holy Spirit using the word as we proclaim it. And we know that will no, no, salvation will never happen unless God chooses to do it the way he's chosen to do it, is by the declaration of his word. And usually that is one of us speaking to an unbeliever and declaring to them the word of God. Now, in some cases, unbelief is not going to raise itself to such reasons. Usually, it's a Christian telling the unbeliever about the word of God and explaining it to them. This does not nullify God being the one who does everything. It's actually exactly the way that God ordained it. Some really poignant sections of scripture where you see the intersection of God's sovereignty and the free call to believe despite no consequences. 
And I want to show you one of those. Look at Matthew 11. probably know the latter part of this section or have heard it before. Look at Matthew 11 verses 25 to 30. Listen to what Jesus says here. Verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone for whom the Son wills to reveal him. But then verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What an amazing verse. Jesus immediately switches from thanking the Father for only saving those whom the Son chooses to reveal to the Father. We just overheard that prayer, obviously, by tenderly inviting his listeners to come to him for rest. Jesus says something similar in John 10. Right in the midst of speaking with the Pharisees, he tells them, no one will come to me unless God first draws him. And then right after that, he tells the crowd that he is the bread of life, that they must believe in him. That wasn't inconsistent with Jesus. He wasn't even ashamed of it. He said, you won't come unless the Father draws you. But you must come. You must believe. I urge you. I plead with you. Be saved from this adultery sinful generation. So we do the same thing. We proclaim the eternal gospel, urging those who do not know Christ to repent and believe. Knowing, however, that only those that God himself draws is our calling. This is the reason why we're alive on earth, to make disciples. Really, it's God who does it all, but he's chosen us to do the work. We share the scriptures, we share the gospel, we display what a great treasure God is and what he seeks to do. To sum up today's main points, in contrast to the beliefs of many in our culture, all men are evil at heart, continually sinning, doomed to die, under God's wrathful condemnation. Man's sinfulness is so severe that he is actually unable to repent unless God supernaturally causes him to repent. Without that, man is completely lost. So also is Israel at that time. God has mercifully chosen to save by grace and election. Undeserved favor poured out uses these believers as ambassadors of the gospel to seek us. We declare the same message that Jesus and the apostles declared, trusting God to use us to save whomever he has chosen. And now I'd like to mention a few other application questions using the workbook, but before I do, questions or comments? Nowhere in this does, is man released from his responsibility, his culpability to repent of sin. And that is affirmed also everywhere in the scriptures. God is a righteous judge. He says by rebuke all day. Anything that's a heart. I am not believing. You are committing a great crime against me. I deserve your belief and faith. It would be just to not save anyone, not rescue anyone from their, their helpless state. Chooses not to because he's merciful, because of his unkind character. Other questions or comments?
Let's look at a few more questions about the state. This is on page 95 of your book. A couple questions about how it would be helpful for us to talk about Number one, what evidence could you offer to someone who doubts that all people are sinful from conception? Exactly. You can just go to a playground or a nursery and you see pretty clearly that they're still covered still from conception. Moreover, it's what the scriptures say. We see in scripture. That's why we use the word scripture. We show them what the Bible says and they say, look, all these things that you see in your life, those are scriptures. Yeah. That's exactly what we'd expect based on what the Bible says. That they're still covered. Number two. If you believe that the doctrine of original sin is unfair, would it be consistent to look for salvation from within the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross? Have you ever looked at that question? Would it be consistent? It would not be consistent, right? Why not? If you object to Adam, why would it be inconsistent to say the same? Yes, hi. all comes down to imputation. If Adam's sin cannot be imputed to us, then why should we expect that Christ's righteousness would be imputed to us, or that our sin would be imputed to us? They are the same concept. It's very different. Number three. If sin passed through all of Adam's descendants, why is it important to affirm that Adam and Eve were the original parents of all people? What do you think? The passages that we've looked at today tell us right here that sin came to all men, death came to all men, condemnation came to all men through Adam. Why is it important to affirm that Adam and Eve were the original parents? Yeah, what would um, this would be just like the, the proof that would confirm it would be necessary for sin to be passed to all, all people. What if God created a separate race of descendants for Cain and his, to find his wife or Adam's sons to find his wife? They didn't come from Adam. They separately evolved. What would that do to the concept of original sin? It wouldn't make sense, right? There'd be a group of people that suddenly got a sin nature and curses from Adam that had no reason to. They were, he wasn't their head. He wasn't their forefather. Why should they have the result of his curse? It doesn't make sense. The only way it makes sense, in the imputation of Adam's sin to us, is if Adam was indeed the representative of all men by being the first man, by being the forefather of the nation. So again, we see that the concept Blending man's ideas, especially based on scientific claims today, actually undermines many important doctrines of science. The next two application questions are a little bit more personal, so it's for you to consider on your own, so I won't go over those again. Last thing I want to do is talk to you about our memory verse. We have one more week with that. Next week we'll be reviewing that. Hopefully you'll have it memorized. What I wanted to do this week is just tell you, make a few observations about the memory verse to maybe help you remember it a little bit better. I don't know. Perhaps you have your own way of memorizing or creating mnemonics. Impressive. Not sure what's going on there. <coughs> but for me, it's helpful if I can center my thinking around certain key words in the text or just notice certain things about them. That way they stick out in my mind. So here's our memory verse, Genesis 2, 15 to 17. Just a couple observations. There's a little bit of a, not parallel, but like something with the verbs in the first verse that's helpful for me to remember. You have took and put and tend and keep. 
got two words that start with P, and there's two verbs going to God and two verbs going to man. So I think it's a little bit helpful to notice that. You'll also notice that the title, the word God, is used twice. That sticks out to me because when the serpent tempted Eve, he did not use this title. He said, did God really say? He did not actually invoke the name of God, Yahweh. He said that he is God. So in this command, or this section of scripture, telling us that God had originally commanded, Moses was very purposeful in using the name Lord God. He used the word each time he identified God in scripture. And the third line there is almost like a little rhyme. Every tree and freely eat, not just eat sounds, but also like to notice those things because it emphasizes God's generosity, right? God's provision. Every tree, of every tree are freely given, and you may freely eat them. Right? So, and then in the last two lines, notice the word shall, which I think is, I don't know if that's just a translation, but it's kind of a weird word to use. You shall not. It's almost like not just prescriptive, but predictive. This is not going to happen in your future. You shall not do this. Here, Moses says that you shall not eat because when you do, you will surely die. And maybe you also have some other mnemonics. Please um, let me know about them. You don't have to do that right now if you don't know what's on here. But that's it for today. I'm going to get a little bit before I usually do. Let me pray for prayer. teaching hour. Lord, it's such a joy to talk about you and talk about your truth. And Lord, I believe, I really believe that our people need to hear it. They need to get this instruction. They need to be confident in this instruction. They need to become bold to obey. So I pray that you would accomplish that. Just as the disciples prayed for boldness, God, I pray that you would give us boldness. And God, that you would give us love, sincere love. Because if we're not sharing the truth out of love, then what are we doing? We're just clanging symbols. God, I pray that instead your love would instruct us by its beauty, that your character would instruct us by your kindness and patience. So we say, I want to be like that. I want to show people God. The most kind thing I can do to them is to tell them about you. So God, make us ambassadors. Make us effective ambassadors for you. We're relying on you to do all the work and to simply declare your name.